Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Audrey Simons and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host... Audra Simons. Hi, Audra. how are you doing, Rachel? I'm well. I'm well. I love. Can we talk about daylight savings time for a second? Oh yeah, I love yeah when we, we fall back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the UK, it's got a really unique experience of going from five thirty in the evening darkness to four thirty. So I'm less keen. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, it was it was a little jarring yesterday when it was dark so early and it was only you know, like five o'clock. But I got to tell you, I love that extra hour of sleep. I don't know if everybody views it that way, but um, <laughs> my favorite time of year, I'll be happy again until the spring. So it's a great time to catch me. So, <laughs> Well, I'm excited for today's guest. Um, so, so awesome to have Kenneth Bible. He's the Chief Information Security Officer for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Uh, he's also served in leadership roles with the U.S. Marine Corps, including Assistant Director for the Information Command, Control, Communications, and Computers Division, IC4, as well as Deputy CIO and CISO. Welcome, Ken. Hi, thank you. It's uh, nice to be here. Excellent. So, Ken, can we jump into straight into the key topic of the hour? Um, the National Cybersecurity Strategy Implementation Plan um, was released in mid-July. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the plan. Yeah, so, so certainly this is a, a pretty striking thing to go from you know, the release of the, uh, the, the, the strategy to the release of uh, an actual implementation plan in like five months. So just amazing how much work went into across the 18 agencies that are leading initiatives in what I look at as a whole of government plan. Uh, what we've seen from this uh, presidential administration is this deep commitment to uh, defensible cyberspace and also the National Cyber Director standing up now uh, under its uh, uh, standing up to lead this implementation plan it's pretty striking, and and the pillars are pretty uh, pretty broad. So everything from defending critical infrastructure, uh, which includes coordinating down to the private sector and the state, local, tribal, and territorial partners, uh, working through CISA as a cybersecurity cybersecurity infrastructure security agency under DHS. Uh, so so this is really uh, it, it's a it's a a call uh, across the, the whole of government and even the whole of uh, Whole of uh, American society to get after this uh, challenge of, of cybersecurity. You know, pillar two, you know, more focused in terms of what CISA and the FBI do in terms of dismantling and disrupting threat actors. And then uh, pillar three, which we've had some play in directly with the department in terms of how do we shape the market forces uh, and drive security and resilience uh, in the, the products that we, that we use uh, across government and then hopefully of being able to inform that for, for the rest of the nation. And then investing in a resilient future. So you're probably tracking kind of some separate work that's been going on around uh, around quantum computing and yes. uh, getting the appropriate, uh, appropriate algorithms that will be uh, post-quantum computing uh, capable or resistant to uh, uh, 
quantum cryptography algorithms to, to, to break that traditional uh, cryptographic algorithms in our in our applications and systems. And then the last pillar being to forge international relationships to pursue you know, shared goals. And this is important because uh, cyber doesn't respect international boundaries. It really doesn't care where the border from one country is to the next. It's a, it's a, a very fluid uh, environment. And in fact, uh, some implications of something that occurs in one country may inadvertently have impacts to the United States uh, or to other countries. So how do we think about that? So it's pretty ambitious. Um, I, I'm pretty excited about being part of part of that from the Department of Homeland Security. Certainly more agencies that are involved, as I said, 18 in, in total that have actions in the plan. But it's it's bigger than that, really. It's, it's really taking a national view, a whole government view of how do we become more secure in cyberspace. So are there any categories, because I know you've talked through the pillars, but are there any categories that you think were not put into the plan that should have been? Or are there areas that you think need more focus? I don't think that there's there are necessarily pillars missing. I think that certainly details underneath it, there's going to be new initiatives that come about. You know, one of the areas that's specifically called out is around software bills of material and how do we hold uh, uh, the industry that's most closely aligned to securing the uh, products uh, accountable for the products that they produce. And certainly software bills of materials, ongoing work in terms of how to collect those. There's a couple of, couple of free standards for how to generate one, uh, but how to manage the influx of, of those products and manage how detailed are they? Do they, do they happen with each uh, minor release that a vendor makes on a software product? Are they only major releases? And then how much use are they if it's only at major release time and we're looking for something as nuanced as a, a particular library for a, a piece of software that was used during the coding process? And I use that specifically around things like Log4j, uh, which we're still finding within the environment. No, absolutely. So what are the plans around how to measure the implementation? Well, I think each of the departments, each of the agencies that's involved in the plan has specific goals that they're working on. Some of this was ongoing work that they were that they were doing. Uh, and so I think that each one, I wouldn't want to try to speak for every every agency, but certainly in one area, say the in terms of what CIS is doing, uh, they've created the, the uh, Joint Cyber Review Board uh, to look at major incidents and to actually produce recommendations and reports. Uh, and they're on their third report. So they're, they're actually off and running uh, and producing materials that are uh, really looking at it from a public-private uh, partnership perspective. Uh, what went well, what didn't go well, uh, what are some recommendations for the future? So I think we measure it by the, the outcomes. Uh, if we're actually actually generating the the products that uh, lead to insights that uh, that generate change, but I wouldn't want to speak to individual departments. I mean, they, they, there's there's quite a few individual goals that each have their own timelines and the like, and, and the way in which they want to measure. So, with everyone who's involved, how will be they be kept accountable for? Well, getting- that goes back. Yeah, I think that goes back to what I said before that. And office of the national cyber director and the national cyber director is kind of the, the orchestra master on this. He's, he's managing the, or he or she, uh, managing the, the different parts of the process and making sure that, uh, that agencies are actually uh, moving forward on what they've reported in the implementation plan as the actions they, they plan to take. 
So how is the DHS actually working to implement these initiatives? Yeah, so a couple of different ways. You know, we leveraged what we were doing uh, in the in the last couple of years, and we've kind of expanded upon a couple of different initiatives. One was our bug bounty program. So we initiated a program called Hack DHS uh, that was actually uh, leveraging some of the cybersecurity infrastructure security agencies' uh, vulnerability disclosure platform capabilities. But we now have. Uh, another vehicle within the department proper to be able to use with the components of DHS as part of Hack DHS. And that's pretty pretty profound. We started off with uh, a very few uh, systems. We looked at it through some, some key systems. Now we've done a total of 20 systems with two department-wide hunts for specific vulnerabilities. We've had 458 researchers uh, that have signed up at various points in time looking at it. And this is really critical, I think, to expanding our view of how we leverage the, 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 the private researcher community. Uh, this is one of the things I think that is, is punctuated uh, is the idea that we don't always see ourselves completely. So it's good to be able to get somebody from outside to take a look and, and find things that we may have missed. And that's truly what has occurred. It's probably the, the most effective insurance policy on our own systems that we've found uh, by letting these independent researchers uh, come in and look at uh, our systems. And I want to say it's pretty cheap, cheap insurance. I mean, we paid out, we probably paid out about $125,000 in, uh, in, in bounties in the, in the first phase. We're up to about uh, half a million paid out in awards as of uh, January 31st of 23. Uh, and uh, so, so we're, we're looking at how we can kind of expand it. But when you think about the cost of a, of a breach uh, or the actual cost that we pay for uh, building and managing the systems, that's pretty cheap. That's, that's a great insurance policy for finding things that may have been missed during the development process. Now, I think uh, it's a great, great way of doing that. Yeah, another initiative that we've, we've taken on board, it kind of came out of a, a secretary's priority uh, from uh, in terms of his uh, infrastructure transformation initiatives from uh, a couple of years ago around how do we use DHS contracting to improve the cybersecurity posture of industry. Uh, and we've, we've kind of translated that uh, into some really close partnership with our procurement offices and, and with across the department, uh, building out a me methodology for not only uh, looking at the current inventory of contractors and figuring out how cyber secure, what's the, what's their maturity in terms of their cybersecurity programs, but also now introducing a brand new evaluation factor for use in our contracts to make it a condition before award. Uh, so we not only have the ability to look at ourselves once somebody has a contract and help them get better, but also now the ability to see that in advance and determine, hey, does this vendor really have the cybersecurity discipline to take on the, the nature of the work that we are, we are proposing to give them. Excellent. So you said it was 18 agencies came together over five months to well, actually more create... than 18 agencies, but it was okay. in terms of those who have assignments in the in the implementation plan, it's 18. So so let's say more than 18 agencies came together <laughs> over over five months. Um, how did they all come together so quickly to get this plan together because that, well, that's it, actually a short time for that many 
groups to it be is. involved. It is. I think that's where it comes back to the, the focus that the administration is at and, and using the leadership of the, the National Cyber Director and of the National Security Council and being able to bring those parties together uh, to look at what they would uh, what they would be able to, to do uh, and what would be fitting would fit within the framework that uh, that the administration laid out with the strategy. So, in terms of the different pillars that you talked through, can we focus in on Pillar Five because uh, um, it's dedicated to the whole forging of international partnerships to pursue shared goals? Um, can you talk more around that particular pillar? and how that's going to come together because yeah i think it would be one that would that i would probably have more limited view on but i'll say that the different agencies even you know talking about it within within dhs we have a, a great uh, policy organization that's engaged in the international forums uh to be able to discuss those goals uh, we have the the work that's happening uh with uh with uh, CISA, uh, in order to, to, to build that, that capacity and build those partners. Uh, we don't, I'd underscore that the department's uh, involvement uh, in the expanding cooperation amongst the uh, Abraham Accords partners and the fact that the Abraham Accords is an enduring coalition of partners to strengthen regional cybersecurity. Uh, I think that's a, a, a really powerful, powerful work. Uh, the department's uh, also working closely in other parts of the of the EU on a broad variety of common cyber issues and and emphasizing how we harmonize our approaches in, in cybersecurity to help the critical infrastructure owners in particular and operators across this kind of increasingly connected world. So whether it's aviation or surface or other critical infrastructure sectors, how can we help them uh, come to some consensus on what the right standards should be for their cybersecurity? So what do you think will be the biggest challenge to actually bring this plan together? Because, you know, all 65 initiatives bringing that to fruition, where where the biggest where do the biggest challenges lie? I think uh, this would be more kind of a personal opinion, but I think the challenge is just having this understanding that that having a national strategy is great and having a national implementation plan is great. But at the end of the day, it's just like the, the, the strategy says, we've got to go rely on those that are closest to the ability to secure the products, to secure them. You know, I can't rewrite the code. Uh, I, I'm usually the person that finds the problem when I run into some sort of vulnerability. And that's the mindset shift, I think, that the strategy and the implementation both are trying to get at is how do we have industry start to take more of a look at themselves Prioritizing how do I deliver secure, deliver secure by design, rather than eventually getting to security. All right, this is the whole point around uh, uh, the the push around S bombs, the the OMB memorandum M twenty two eighteen and then M twenty three sixteen that followed on this year that talked about uh, attestations by industry that software they delivered to the federal government was built using this secure software development framework. It's about how does industry take that on board and actually prioritize that, and that becomes the business value is that they deliver secure software, not that they deliver 50 more features next year. Uh, and that's boardroom discussion. And that's that's the real challenge in cybersecurity right now is it's not a function of uh, the government doing that much. Uh, I mean, there's a lot in the plan that government is going to do, 
but it's only effective if industry takes it on board and says, yeah, that's a priority for me too, which it should, because again, cybersecurity is now becoming a business imperative. If you don't do it, eventually you're going to get, you know, you're going to either find yourself not able to buy cyber insurance, or you're going to find the reputational risk of having been breached too great for you to continue in business. So I think that's maybe the biggest challenge is that mindset shift that, that has a, as a, that our industry bases, whether you're in DOD or, or DHS or any place else, have to undergo is that kind of realization that we can't do it ourselves. We have to rely on industry to some extent. And how is industry being encouraged to actually care? Beyond the insurance side of things and things like that, but how are they going to be encouraged to care to ensure that certainly that was my point in trying to go and when we were trying to drive the cyber hygiene is to say look if, if you want to be competitive and we're in this we've added this competitive factor that says that your cyber hygiene your your cybersecurity posture is a is a pay factor in whether or not you're going to get awarded a contract uh, i'm making that a i'm making that a business decision is that where do you want to prioritize um, DOD has taken a little different approach uh, with their CMMC program, their Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, where they actually are requiring a third-party assessor to come in and give you a, a checklist, a certificate uh, that you meet these requirements. And we're both going after the same thing. It's, it's the requirement has remained the same. It's just their approach probably makes more sense for larger vendors who can afford to go uh, invest that kind of money, whereas. With DHS, our industry base uh, was a significant amount of small business primes, and we didn't want to lose that competitive advantage in terms of the creativity and innovation of small business. So we had to look at the approach a little differently. I'd also say that what what we've found is what we're doing with our cyber hygiene approach and the and the evaluation factor in the awards process actually will keep us from having to revisit every time revisit rulemaking every time something changes with NIST. So I'm hoping that we have built something not only to understand what the cyber hygiene posture is before they get an award, but because we're taking looks at them throughout this course of the contract, we're helping them to understand where they're weak and how do we start to go give them the resources to strengthen. So again, going back to the secretary's original goal is how do we use our contracting to elevate the cybersecurity posture? That's great. Excellent. And could I ask, out of the 65 different initiatives, which initiative do you actually believe will be the most impactful? Wow. Personal opinions, uh, okay. Yeah. There's a there's a there's there's a host of them that probably could have a great deal of impact. I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I would want to pick because I don't know that all of them will work work within DHS. I mean, there's, I certainly think that, that the, the international partnerships piece is, is pretty powerful in this space, and particularly given the nature of some of these, these products. When we talk about the secure software and secure by design, that's something that, you know, the products that we buy are not all made in the U.S., and there's software that comes from other countries that's assembled together to make up a product. So I would, I would, almost, I would almost hazard a guess to say that Kind of increasing, increasing the understanding across the, the international community and having uh, similar kinds of strategies and and uh, implementation planning in in those uh, governments could be a driver 
because it's increasing the awareness across the board. Uh, at the end of the day, I think the fact that so many of our business processes are driven by software, um, getting that right, building secure by design, is probably the most important thing that we can get out of this. Because otherwise, we're, 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 we're trying to get, we're chasing a problem uh, rather, than, rather than proactively saying, can we, can we get in front of it? Uh, and then again, that work around the SBOM, allowing us to be able to quickly identify whether the products we're using are actually effective and to be able to act on that and, and hopefully in an automated fashion. Brilliant. So I did want to make a side comment too. What I what I really appreciated about, you know, kind of the, the release of this plan is uh, it was acting National Cyber Director Walden said it's going to serve as a living document. You know, so many things are kind of, you know, one and done. We said it, but as we know, cybersecurity is a very dynamic, dynamic world and it, it changes seemingly by the day. So that's, it's wonderful to know that that's happening. And it's uh, kind of awesome to think that there's going to be a version 2.0 in the spring that seems so fast that's awesome well i think that's it right you, you, and i like that approach you know keeping it as uh, something that's that's a living document as we learn more i mean certainly as we talked about before there are things that are ongoing right part of this implementation plan and the reason i think that it that it moves so fast is that we're able to go leverage a lot of work that was already ongoing uh, but that also means that as we're learning more and adding new things in, why not why not add those into the add those into the implementation as well? So I think that's that's uh, really uh, been a been a, a unique strategy to to have uh, an implementation plan. But but it has the benefit of remaining fresh. It's not something that uh, you're staring at three years later, saying what what did we. What did we get done? Or now we move on to the next technology or the next uh, buzzword of the, of the day, uh, which which is a risk we have in this industry is the, the hype cycle. Absolutely. So, so Audrey, um, do you want to ask your favorite question? I do. I do, if that's okay. <laughs> so um, when I see some of the amazing guests that we have who come on the podcast with us and I see their career and the flow and just how different the different elements of their career are, um, you know, it's never a straight path. So I absolutely love to hear kind of, I would love to hear your origin story, you know, and, and just, you know, how you got to where you are today. Cause I, I'm sure it wasn't a direct path and no, has some very good stories around it. Yeah. I sometimes joke that it was neither straight nor narrow. Right. So Actually, at some point in time, I've been a chief technology officer, so a CIO, and a, and a CISO. Uh, you kind of mentioned that through my executive career uh, at DOD and now at DHS. But but at, 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 at my heart, I'm an engineer. I mean, I was an engineer by undergraduate and graduate, and I started out my career uh, at a naval shipyard here in Charleston working on nuclear submarines. I built, uh, designed and built support systems to, uh, to allow the reactor plant to be taken offline and at some point to actually work on the reactor plant itself. So I spent the first almost 10 years of my career uh, on, on a, literally on a drawing board and doing design work and down on submarines. And, and it really was a formative experience, though, because the U.S. Navy Nuclear Propulsion Program is this wonderful discipline around uh, the engineering that takes place, uh, and it forces you to really 
document what you're doing and to critically think and to be able to defend the decisions that you're making. Uh, and so when, when that shipyard that I was working in was closed after the fall of the, the Berlin Wall, and uh, we didn't need as many submarines, so we didn't need as many shipyards, I actually pivoted to start using a little-known technology called geographic information systems at the time, uh, basically digital mapping, to lay out the hazardous and radio radioactive waste sites on the shipyard as we were closing. And that got picked up by uh, one of the Navy organizations that was moving into where I was living to kind of fill the economic void. And one of the department heads said, hey, I see you, you know something about this technology. Would you come work for me? And I, I kind of joked that that was when my career took a kind of a 90 degree turn away from more traditional engineering into uh, information technology. But uh, that led me to, to have to learn new things. So, you know, being kind of a curious curious in mindset and wanting to learn new things, it wasn't hard for me to go learn something about software development, to learn something about networks, to learn something about radio communications, uh, to be able to go work in these different areas and facets uh, of this new field that I was moving into. Uh, that led to me being the selected to go up to uh, my first job in D.C. to be the chief engineer for the major acquisition organization uh, buying the enterprise information systems for the Navy. So the ERP system, uh, the training systems, uh, even some of the systems for the Marine Corps. Uh, from there, I was selected to my first executive service job as the chief technology officer for the Marine Corps, which was a lot of fun because we were right at that phase of coming out of the wars, the land wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, thinking about what would the new national defense strategy require, and a very different approach, right, from being in a, a land war to being back to our naval expeditionary routes out someplace in the ocean on a rocky island someplace, having to go maintain some sort of uh, threat to an adversary. And being able to communicate and to use the technology that we gained over those previous uh, two decades in this new way, in this new, more diverse, uh, distributed way. So it was a lot of fun in that job. Uh, and then uh, based on some retirements, I, I ended up leading up to be the deputy CIO. Uh, and so that was a uh, kind of a change in, in, in the process of thinking about how do I make this technology actually work for a business user? Really getting focused in on kind of the stakeholder, the user stakeholder, and what technologies that work best for them. Uh, that 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 role of deputy CIO transitioned into this uh, the, the the title that I left the Marine Corps with, the assistant uh, uh, deputy commandant for uh, for information. Uh, that was really a realization that the deputy that you have both sides of the equation, both the business side of the equation as well as the warfighting side of the equation. Uh, so, so not only the, the, the IT, but the C4 in the equation. Uh, and uh, certainly, certainly en enjoyed that time in the Pentagon. I say with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek. Uh, but eight years in the Pentagon and then the opportunity to come over and take on the, the department level role DHS, which has been a tremendous amount uh, of fun uh, and uh, really kind of landed right as the solar winds incident was uh, taking full 
full effect, uh, which uh, actually actually uh, empowered me in some ways to kind of use all of the skills I had from the past to, to apply to the problem. And I found the problems weren't really all that different. It's just the environment was different, which we had to go solve. So that's the short story of how I go from being a nuclear engineer on the drafting board designing to being the CISO for federal department. You figure out that trail. I, still- <laughs> I, I like it. <laughs> I like it. Anyone who has a direct path just hasn't had as much fun. Exactly. I think you're right. And, and frankly, going back to the, the first principles, you know, I think that engineering background and the experience of having to kind of break down very complex problems into something with more bite size and the discipline behind that process has carried through the entirety of my career. And I try to go talk about that with, with young people that I speak to about coming into a cybersecurity career is how do you, how do you learn that critical thinking? How do you learn that process? The other thing I always try to remind and talk to young people about is that the job that you will end up in probably hasn't been invented yet. And I say that from personal experience because when I started my career, there was no such thing as a system. So don't be constrained by what the job titles are today. It'll probably be different tomorrow. So. Most definitely. Particularly when we start thinking about AI and, and all the things oh, yeah. that to come. Right? <laughs> <laughs> What's next? <laughs> my goodness. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's certainly, I think the field is, is changing. Uh, AI is pro- probably is one of the more disruptive things that we will experience. Although, uh, and it certainly, it certainly eclipsed quantum uh, in terms of the, the, the focus that I've had to go make uh, in, in even the last six months. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it just goes to being comfortable uh, with that uncertainty. Yeah. Well, that's going to be an exciting, I think, conversation in a year's time, uh, without a doubt. <laughs> it's when you come back as CISO of AI for, for DHS. <laughs> I think my boss might have a, have a lead on that. He was, uh, Eric Heisen is the CIO. He's also been headed by Secretary Mayorkas as the Chief AI Officer. So that's, uh, that is indeed a role that I'm trying to go support and make sure that uh, we're doing it in a, in a secure way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been so wonderful. You know, one of, one of the things that we really love about the guests that we have on is being able to, you know, double click into themes, um, regulations, everything that's impacting, you know, business, government kind of way of life today. Uh, and the opportunity to really talk through more of the National Cybersecurity Strategy Implementation Plan is really critical because these are significant movements forward um, and a true pivot, right, of, as cybersecurity becomes like the leading conversation, um, you know, and, and how do we eventually at some point kind of get ahead of it versus chasing it. And, and these kind of uh, plans and strategies are, are critical to moving forward. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel and Audra. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Ken. Wonderful. So to all our listeners, again, thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe. Every Tuesday, a fresh new episode, Ken Bible, landing right in your email box. How awesome is that? So until next time, everybody, stay safe. 
Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. 